Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and welcome to episode number 77 of the In The Shift podcast. 77, well, if as a younger person, you ever had a very misguided but uh, obsessive relationship with numbers in the Bible and what they meant, then you'll know seven is the perfect number. And two sevens, could it get any better? I suppose it could, three sevens, but we'll have to wait a long time for that. So, for the next few years at least, uh, this is probably going to be the most extraordinary, mind-blowing, life-changing episode of a podcast you've ever listened to. So how could you possibly not listen after that? Hey, uh, sorry for the the uh, delay in getting this episode out. I hurt my back uh, quite badly, and then I uh, had lots of the drugs to deal with that situation, and that meant maybe I wasn't in a great space to be just recording thoughts and sending them out to the world for everyone to hear. So anyway, uh, things are now much improved and now I'm not on uh, strong uh, drugs anymore. And so now I trust myself to once again speak to the public. That's you. So hi. It's nice to be back. And a bit frustrating because this year things have been a little slower in taking off than I intended. But anyway, I'm a real human being <laughs> trying to make my way through the world, so I'm sure you'll understand. Hey, today on the podcast, uh, I really want to spend some time reflecting on some of the th- things, themes, ideas that I've seen pop up in a number of different ways in, in our conversations over the last couple of years, really, and um, and they don't specifically relate to megachurch culture, although I know that's been a big part of the focus over the last uh, 12 months or so, but it certainly is connected to that. And it's really a broader discussion on certain Christian understandings of ideas of sin, judgment, forgiveness, empowerment, and the way in which they get used within the kind of evangelical world. It's actually Pentecostal, charismatic, you know, whatever label we might be giving to the space that you find yourself in. I want to reflect today on how that language is used in in ways that really create conditions for um, the establishment and entrenchment and abuse of power dynamics, the marginalization of people who might be considered uh, of lower status or of weaker power or even those who have suffered, and the way in which that language is used to prop up those who... um, who seek to gain so much from those systems of power within church spaces. Uh, so, so I want to do that today. And, and I want to do that because it really, to me, this is like sometimes we think about the thing behind the thing, right? And so you can have um, ways of talking within the Christian world that sound, and Shane and I nudged at this a bit last time in, in our last conversation, but they sound very Christian, very religious. They, they use the kind of language. They even have the sort of the Bible verses and the, and the text to back them up. And they've become assumed ways of seeing and believing and talking and describing faith uh, personally and communally. And yet they are a big part of what uh, is in fact allowing kind of harm to flourish within spaces like this. And so I want to name some of that today, and I want to try and unfold what I think is actually, at least the way I see the biblical narrative, the biblical story, is is actually doing the opposite of the way in which some of this language is so often used. And uh, and if that doesn't make sense now, then hopefully, in a few minutes' time, once I have unfilled 
the amazing revelations of the 7-7 episode, uh, then, then it'll make a bit more sense then. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to get stuck into that. We're going to talk about are all sins equal? Uh, we're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about depravity. We're going to talk about uh, empowerment. We're going to talk about the imperial and prophetic trajectories in the Old Testament and where Jesus sits in relation to those. We're going to talk about Paul's language of all people being sinners and how that should and shouldn't be used, uh, in my opinion. So that's the kind of stuff we're going to get into. Uh, before we do that, of course, a reminder that you can support In The Shift at patreon.com slash In The Shift. Chuck us a few bucks a month or look, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks a month. If you've got loads of money and you're like, don't know what to do with this, then feel free to send it my way. Uh, and and we can make this thing really fly. But no, uh, seriously, uh, just appreciate the support of those who, who do financially back In The Shift on Patreon. There's a cool little Discord community we have uh, with some great conversations uh, for that for that crew, I'm really, really deeply grateful for those who support the podcast. Only ever do it if you've got money spare and can afford to do so. Uh, so uh, all of that said, this is episode, can you believe it, 77 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Okay, so as I kind of said up front, uh, I want to talk about language of sin, repentance, forgiveness, empowerment um, today in, in this conversation. And I want to do so in a way that tries to get at how this language can be used to, to harm and how also some of these ideas uh, are supposed to or intended to, to work in a way to kind of undo that kind of harm. And so it's an extension on some of the themes we've explored in the podcast over the last 12 months, which is ideas that are sort of intended to help in human flourishing that get used instead to do the exact kind of opposite of their intentions, right? And um, and, and this comes in like, I suppose, just of how effective within, within harmful church spaces the, um, the gaslighting can be, right? The convincing you that the problem is really yours and that you just aren't understanding or that you aren't being faithful enough to God or whatever it is that that is used in a way to make you feel as someone who's experienced some kind of abuse or uh, misuse of power, that this is your fault for not uh, being committed enough or faithful enough or simply that what's going on is not as bad as you think or or that your response needs to be different, that you need to be more forgiving or more loving or can't you just understand what's going on here. Now, the reason I describe all of that is because that kind of description of things has proved so unbelievably effective in keeping people isolated in their experience, in um, contributing to a sense of... Um, Am I going insane or am I losing my way? Or simply, I need to walk away because I'm the only one who's having this kind of experience and I need to get out. You know, all of the different kinds of things, the narratives, the stories that we've heard over the last 12 to 18 months. And I think, again, what's been so 
potent about these stories hitting the public in the way that they have. And one of the reasons for having the conversation so often here on in The Shift is because so much of the power of that harm lies in the isolation. And you can only sort of get away with convincing people that it's all their fault if they think they're one of the only ones. But the more you start to hear the story and realize that you weren't the only one, and in fact, so many others around you were having a very similar experience, that's when you start to see the patterns and that, oh, this is systemic. This isn't just a thing that happened to me. So um, so that's been a big part of what's been so powerful in the last 12 to 18 months. But I want to continue unpicking some of this because I think not only is this important for recognizing harm and the recognizing harmful theology, which is what I want to get at today, but it also um, kind of, for me, perverts the sense of what it is that the Christian story at its best is, pos- is capable of doing. And I don't say that to sort of convince anyone to be a Christian as much as this has always been, I guess, a, a podcast about reframing Christian belief in a way that might help us to undo some of the harmful stuff and find the life-giving stuff, right? Because there is uh, a lot of life-giving stuff within the tradition, whether that's something you identify with or can still find or not. And I know that for many people, if you've experienced a lot of challenge and difficulty or even trauma within religious spaces, uh, trying to reclaim some sense of healthy spirituality within that tradition might be beyond you now. And I totally get that and understand that. So this is not to try and sort of convince you back in. It's more a way of saying, firstly, those who are using Christian language and the Christian tradition to harm, even if unconsciously, in their, because their theology is shaping the community and, and, and belief in that kind of way, that's not necessarily reflective of, of what Christianity is really about and trying to do. And, uh, and so uh, I'm determined, if you like, to find different ways of talking about Christian faith so that the Christian story can change, the Christian narrative can change, and that, um, and that those who still find great meaning in the person of Jesus, perhaps, or in trying to follow Jesus in some way or trying to hold on to their faith uh, can actually find meaning in that in ways that are much more life-giving. So that's, I guess, what I'm interested in, in trying to do, a big part of what I'm interested in trying to do. And um, and I've been reflecting a lot as I've heard all of these stories and as I've heard people's experiences and as I've heard defenses from institutions of their behavior or of individuals, powerful individuals within those institutions. I was kind of struck by, you know, like one of the things I was I was struck by was when the stories come out of people kind of way down like the hierarchy, like way down the rungs of the chain, if you like, or the, I've got to get my metaphors together here, the rungs of the ladder or the links of the chain, um, the people who are at the bottom and how kind of uh, ruthlessly they're often treated for minor misdemeanors. So whether it's people applying to go to a, a Bible college and, and getting in but having to reveal sort of personal details of their lives and being judged for those or being, you know, or, or being kicked out for having a, a drink uh, of alcohol with a friend or something like that. Um how there's this kind of purity that functions as a very in-out mechanism at those very low levels within the system. And yet how at the other end of the system, you have very powerful figures who are committing now revealed, you know, like abuses of power or drunkenness or all sorts of things. And again, my, my thing here is not to like, castigate those people necessarily for what they did, depending on what those things were. Um, but 
to just note the hypocrisy of, of the situation because often what happens when those very powerful people commit indiscretions is language like, you know, redemption and forgiveness and uh, we're not all perfect, we're just all trying to follow Jesus. Um, you know, God doesn't uh, revoke his call or, you know, this isn't going to be the end for you. New things are ahead. Uh, can't wait to see what this new season will bring. Uh, I know, you know, the, the reinstatement of kind of quote-unquote fallen leaders. And again, the, the, the question I have here is not so much whether or not those fallen leaders should be reinstated or not, although I'm sure I have plenty of thoughts on all of that. The, the, the thing I'm trying to get at here is why there's such a discrepancy between uh, those powerful people and the way they are cared for and treated um, and forgiven and the way people right down the bottom of the chain uh, can be treated in such different kinds of ways. And perhaps the answer to that is kind of obvious in one sense, you know, it's just about power. But I'm interested in how the language of Christian faith uh, is saturates these spaces in such a way that that seems like reasonable behavior, right? And this is a problem within the church for a lot of the church's history, especially whenever the church has power. And so when we see the church aligned with power, we see these kinds of problems start to emerge and they have they have influenced the kind of theological constructions of Christianity, right? And so what, what we see often around this kind of language is a way of minimizing the offending of the powerful. So whether it's, you know, language of repentance or forgiveness or restoration or reconciliation, um, whatever it might be, uh, or all have sinned or none are perfect, that's used to minimize the offending of the powerful. But then it's similarly used to marginalize, to judge and to exclude those who have a lot less power. Uh, and so um, this happens like all the time you know, and it's a problem. And there's a, you know, the, one of the ideas, for example, I'm hearing, I remember hearing sort of discussed a lot uh, when I was younger was this kind of notion that uh, because we're all sinners, for example, all sins are like the same. And all the sins are the same to God because they essentially make us all sinners. And, and there might be some like, oh, look, the consequences of some sins is different, but all sin is ultimately the same to God. And I just, like, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a helpful, <laughs> I don't think that's true, or some kind of helpful um, phrase or idea. Because what it does is all sins are the same, ultimately takes someone who's incredibly powerful and who's committed some quite serious indiscretion and can minimize it because redemption and, and restoration and reconciliation can happen so quickly for them in that space. And at the same time, like the six-year-old who just told a bit of a lie or the um, 12-year-old or the 20-year-old or the, or the woman in a, in a, in a space who, who might have been harmed, right? What they're being told is essentially, I'm the same as my abuser or my little lie is basically just as bad to God as the murderer in jail and and what that does is it is it minimizes the the sin if you like to use this language in in this in this conversation we're going to use the kind of language the way it's used minimize the sin of the powerful and and amplify the sin of the vulnerable and um and you know i, I think about what it's like like, for example, and, and I, you know, I, I say this 
with with tenderness and with care, I hope. But for someone who's like been abused or maybe even sexually abused, for example, as as a young person um, by somebody in their life, and then they find themselves in church that weekend, and even if they're not being explicitly, and often are not, sometimes this does happen. In fact, far too often this does happen but it doesn't have to happen for the same effect, right? Which is to be directly blamed for the thing that happened to you. Although I certainly know that that does happen far too often. But even that aside, to come into a space like a church community and to be told in sermons and to sing in songs about how you're not worthy of God's love, but God sort of loves you anyway, Um, just because God's so good, even though you don't deserve it, to be told that you're a sinner who's, um, you know, who needs to repent. Um, I've been reflecting on the way in which that can be so harmful to someone who has suffered abuse trauma. And it might not just be, let's say, the young person who's experienced some kind of abuse. It might be for anybody, someone in a, in a violent relationship or somebody who's experiencing toxicity, uh, bullying in a workplace or, or whatever it might be, you're experiencing the the stuff that makes you feel small, maybe ashamed, uh, vulnerable, and then you come into a space and the constant messaging is, I'm not worthy, um, I'm the problem. Right, And even if it's not specifically about that one situation, it's not hard to see how that gets deep into our psyche. And so this sits you know, alongside another theological idea which, which comes through in various forms from kind of Augustine's notion of original sin through to Calvin's uh, theology of total human depravity. You know, this idea that at the core of human identity is depravity, is sinfulness, is corruption. It's a very interesting, and I say that word in quotation marks perhaps, a very interesting idea in the kind of psychological impact that it has on people and can have on people. And um, and there's some problems here to wrestle with, some theological problems to wrestle with because what people will do typically in defense of this is say, yeah, but that's the case, isn't it? You know, like all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God or... Um, Jeremiah's, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. Um, there, there are these verses and texts and stories and passages in Scripture that seem to uphold this notion of total human depravity, of all of our sinfulness. So how do we reconcile, you know, this is where we get to the point of, is Christianity, in, in a sense, an irredeemable religion, right? Mm-hmm. Is it so um, infused with these ideas that that ultimately can be used in really harmful ways, that there's that there's nothing to be salvaged from it. And that's certainly the conclusion that, that some people come to, and understandably so, I think. You know, I think about um, so many of the songs that we sing within church, and I just can't sing most of them, you know. I'm fortunate to be in a community where we write a lot of our own songs that, that tell a different kind of story, you know, but 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 I simply, I just can't sing over and over and over again about how unworthy I am. I just don't think that's healthy. <laughs> I don't think that's good for us. Um, not for everybody, at least. So I want to get I want to get it um, 
some of what I think is going on there as we go along. You know, conversely to this language of like depravity and sinfulness and, and, and judgment and guilt before God and all that kind of stuff. There's also the way in which the language of like empowerment is used. And I, as you'll know, I, I spent some time within many Pentecostal tradition uh, and, and in particular in my, in my sort of late teens and 20s in a very triumphalist kind of faith-oriented um, prosperity gospel type Pentecostal environment where empowerment sort of sort of a strange paradox here because you've got this this story of sinfulness and sort of not being worthy and yet there's also this kind of and yet because of Jesus now I'm able to overcome and be extraordinary right so so this is the kind of flip side of of the narrative and so this is what stops us from falling deep into the pit uh, or stops many people from falling deep into the pit of self of despair which is even though you're sort of terrible and unworthy and depraved uh, because um, Jesus died for you and, and paid the price for all of your depravity and sin, now you get to live this victorious, overcoming, prosperous life where everything will go well for you, or at least you will be an overcomer. You know, you'll be filled with um, power. And so the language of power gets used a lot. But what kind of strikes me, I suppose, is just how all of this is like inverse to what I see in the scriptural narrative. And I'll explain what I mean by that. That... Language of power and empowerment, in my experience within the church, is at its worst when it's being directed at people who already have a lot of power, right? So I've talked about this before on the podcast, but let's let's you know say there is language within uh, within the scriptures that is written from the perspective of those who are enduring you know incredible suffering and the abuse of the power of empire, and so they write texts about that, you know, saying, and like, so for example, some of the Psalms that are written from the perspective of those who have experienced great violence and they're expressing anguish and pain and trauma in their poems and prayers to God. Uh, And they're a way to kind of cathartically grieve and express the level of their pain. And they talk about, you know, God, would you, would you wipe out my enemies? You know, Uh, a really understandable, at the you know in context even if even if I would I would say oh I hope God doesn't answer those prayers uh, they're very understandable prayers to pray for those who you know for example the nation of Israel having experienced the destruction of their city having experienced deep deep psychological trauma of war find themselves trying to give voice to that pain that's very different from and and it's. <laughs> the problem comes when, let's say, a few hundred years into the Christian story, when Christianity becomes aligned with the Roman Empire and gains great political power. So now when people with great power say, yes, God, as the scriptures say, would you slay my enemies? That now means something very different. Just because it's scripture doesn't mean you get to just to just use it like that, right? And so um, one of the things that happens is that language of like empowerment and power for example, that's directed often at... So you think about like Jesus and his Beatitudes where he he takes language of blessing, uh, which is this kind of statement of solid God, divine solidarity of God is with you and for you and desires your flourishing. And he directs that kind of language at the poor in spirit, at the mourning, who are grieving, you know, deep in grief, at the meek, 
who don't have a lot of power, right, for those who are hungering for things to be put right. You know, this is where Jesus wants to direct his proclamation of blessing. These aren't like conditions for, for blessing. They are proclamations of divine solidarity with those who are um, on the underside of power. Uh, and so, you know, often that's where Jesus is directing his attention. And yet that language of like blessing gets used for like, middle to upper class white folk <laughs> 21st century western world to like give them even more reasons to like buy that second house or to get make that business even more profitable or whatever you know like it becomes a spiritual justification and so where it was language directed at people who were on the underside it becomes language that gives power to those who already have much power and then the the language of judgment and sin gets directed at those who are already often on the outside or who are already feeling excluded or who are suffering. And so the language of sin and judgment gets directed to marginalized folk like a um, queer community or to women or um, something like that, right? So, so I want to think a bit more about all of this. And what I want to do is unwind from here, go back and think a little bit about the, the background and context to some of the stuff we see in the New Testament that gets used badly and try and see if we can um, undo the bad usage and find a new way to understand it, right? So that's what I want to do for the remainder of this conversation. One of the ways that I find helpful to do this is to think about, uh, there's, a, there's an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, who, who talks about the trajectories of story within the Old Testament. And, you know, the Old Testament, like, all of the Bible is not um, one perspective. So you don't have, actually at any point really, uh, this is true both in Old and New Testaments, uh, what we might call a, you know, a, a, a dominant view or like a one view of God, one view of humanness or of reality or of what God wants. Uh, we find conversations, we find debates, we find different traditions being preserved within the one same story. And that can sometimes be confusing for people who aren't used to dealing with the text in that kind of way. Uh, and so there are lots of things going on in the Old Testament. Um, there are lots, you know, scholars often think about the fact that within the, the Torah, for example, the first five books of the Old Testament, there are four different sources um, and I won't get into all of that, but there are four different like traditions that tell the story in their own way with their own emphases that are all sort of combined together into those five books. Uh, and, and scholars do a lot of work trying to trace the threads of those different traditions. There are different oral traditions that sit alongside each other. So you think about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, for example, as two different uh, oral traditions of creation mythologies. Uh, there, are, there are different views on whether there's one God or many gods at times within the Old Testament, there are different views about what God is like and what God wants from us. Uh, and one of the things Walter Brueggemann does, which I find really helpful, is he, 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 zeroes, in or he, he zeroes in on two particular trajectories. Because, you know, you could find yourself chasing a, a, a thousand um, threads to try and track all, the, all that's going on. But two in particular that I find really helpful, and he talks about the imperial trajectory and the, and the prophetic trajectory. So if you think about the story of Israel as told in the Old Testament, you know, it's this story of these liberated slaves who come out of Egypt, uh, who then get formed as a people, and core to their identity is this sense that we are slaves who were freed, you know, and so all the way, in fact, through the Old Testament, there's this reminder of this story at the core of Israel's identity, liberated slaves who had been rescued by God. And 
Um, over time in the story, and I'm not going to wade through all the details of it, more just try and sketch out the, the big ideas here. They, you know, they become a nation and they're a nation without a king. So when we get to the book of, um, of Judges, then they are a people group within an area that all the nations around them have monarchies. And they feel like they would like a monarchy. They want a king. And there's this debate with the prophet Samuel about whether or not they should have a king appointed. And Samuel says to them on behalf of God that God is their king and they should have no king. But they, and if you get a king, then that king will take your children and put them in his army. He'll charge your taxes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these are all the things that will happen if you end up getting a king. But in the end, they want to be like the other nations around them, and they so they desire a king. And from and really from 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 that point in the story forward, you get these two different trajectories. And really, you're already seeing that the seeds of it here. One is the trajectory, the, the the prophetic trajectory, which is constantly bringing challenge to power, and the and the the imperial trajectory, which is about the the rise and the establishment of the throne and of the kingdom and of the kingship and the monarchy, right? Which is about entrenching and establishing and preserving power. And those two trajectories are clash repeatedly within the story. They're clashing right here at the beginning where Samuel the prophet is saying, uh, you shouldn't have a king. And the people saying, no, 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 we want a king. And and the way the story is told, and it, you know, different passages, different parts of the text are really advocating for or supporting those two different perspectives. And so as we go through, we see, you know, we do see the establishment of a monarchy in Israel. We see the emergence of Saul, and then Saul turns out to be a bad king. So we see the emergence of David, who is like the redemptive arc in the story of monarchy. He's the second king of Israel. Uh, But then David himself, who is sort of the archetypal hero of the Old Testament imperial trajectory, um, is himself revealed to have um, sinned greatly, right? He 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 takes a woman who is not his, who is married to someone else, and forcibly uh, brings her into his bed, right? There's a there's a there's all sorts of um, abuse happening within that story. Um, he has her husband murdered, and he's confronted by the prophet, right? And then he has this kind of repentance story, but then again he continues to be a, a leader with. Um, who leads, depending on the, on the on the accounts you read, is an incredibly violent figure or is a man after God's heart who is who is a really beautiful lover of God and of and of people, right? And and maybe maybe there's elements of you know um, complexity within within the the narrative figure of David here, uh, and there's there's like for all of us multiple stuff going on. But it's interesting to think about what's kind of emerging in the story, and so what's emerging in the story is this. Um, concern that we find right back in Samuel and starting to follow through now into some of the other prophetic uh, challenges that this monarchy is establishing too much power and is using violence to do so. And so when David wants to build the temple, God essentially tells him, you're, you're too violent, right, to build my temple. So your son will have to do it. Now, interestingly, again, there, it's like, hang on, but wasn't God supposedly blessing all of those conquests and war that David was doing? And yet here we find another perspective on the story, which is to say, you're, you're too violent, you don't get to build the temple. Uh, then David's son, Solomon, becomes king. 
And and what we see narrated in the story here is the building of the temple, uh, but also the building of Solomon's palace, which takes much longer than the building of the temple, which is kind of a bit of a dig at Solomon. And also we see in those stories of the building of the temple and the palace, the recruitment of or the acquiring of slave labor in order to do that, the building up of chariots and armies, which the Torah explicitly, when, when the sort of the idea of monarchy is being presented uh, or is being explored or narrated or edited sort of much later, in fact, when the, when the stories are put together, there's, there's an instruction that kings should not amass for themselves chariots and armies and horses and slaves. And yet here in Solomon's story quite early on, again, Solomon often talked about in the Christian tradition as kind of, oh, the first half of his life, he was a really good king. It was only later on when he um, had too many wives and concubines that he went astray. But actually within the story early on, you see he's using slave labor, he's acquiring for himself a wealth and military might that is expressly forbidden by other parts of the scriptural text. So this kind of tension and clash, in fact, continues on through the monarchy of, of Israel's story. And so you have kings emerge with great power who are usually almost always bad and prophets who challenge that power and who keep calling those kings and those powerful people to repentance, right? And so one of the big arcs of the Old Testament story is power being used badly and violently and prophets who would call those who are using power badly and violently to repent, in other words, to change, to turn, to remember who they were, which is slaves who were freed, uh, to remember that they were once an oppressed people, to remember justice and mercy uh, and and, you know, we have pages and pages and pages and pages of prophetic texts uh, essentially trying to challenge those with power to change their ways, right? And that is really the big backdrop of the Old Testament story into which then the New Testament story emerges. And there is, so there are these two themes r- at least running through here, right? The celebration of the monarchy and especially of David of like as the archetypal hero. And even if there were a bunch of bad kings, at least David was a good one. And one day one will come to rule on David's throne and he will be like David, but even better. And we look forward to that. And so some of the messianic kind of anticipation is centered around that, that archetypal David hero story. Uh, and yet at the same time, this other kind of trajectory, which says actually the whole thing is is a mess and needs to be undone. And Jesus somehow comes and simultaneously kind of fulfills and undoes it, right? The, the messianic kind of um, anticipation of a powerful king who would rule on the throne of David. Because in many ways, what the gospel stories do, each in their own way, is, is talk about how Jesus comes to fulfill that messianic anticipation that idea of a deliverer who would come and rule on the throne of David and and of the you know of his government and kingdom there would be no end, and yet the way in which Jesus fulfills that um, is much more in tune with the prophetic trajectory of the Old Testament, which is an undoing of power, a giving up of his power, uh, a choosing to sacrifice and self-giving love rather than seek out violence against his enemies, right? And so ultimately, Jesus sits with the even as he kind of. Um, paradoxically fulfills the messianic hope. Uh, he does so, and this is you know a big part of why he's rejected by a lot of his religious contemporaries, is because he does so 
um, precisely by siding with the prophetic trajectory over the imperial one. And so, you know, where does he primarily direct his anger, his judgment, his calls for repentance? You know, it is to the religiously powerful. It is to those with wealth. It is to those who use their power to exclude others. You know, I think about his his challenge, you know, in, in the gospel, in Matthew's account of the Jesus story uh, in, in chapter 23 when he's getting stuck into religious uh, leaders who use their power to exclude, you know, and he, he pronounces these prophetic woes to them, you know, um, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are, you know. This very strong, it's, and it's very much in the prophetic tradition, you know, woe to you, blind guides, and on he goes, um, you know, about how they sort of practice these tithes, but they've neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Um, you know, woe to you, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're dead, you know, and unclean, right? So um, there's this, like... This perfectly encapsulates, in many respects, the way in which Jesus is, is siding with the traditional trajectory of the prophetic challenge to power in the Old Testament. And, and so his calls for repentance and his calls for change need to be understood, in many respects, within that wider context, right? And then where does Jesus primarily direct his language of compassion, his language of inclusion, and even his language of power and empowerment? Well, it's to those who are on the edges, it's to the quote-unquote sinners, it's to the marginalized and the unclean and the sick and the sex workers and the poor, you know, where Jesus directs his language of empowerment and blessing, as I said earlier, is towards those people who have so little of that, right? And so if we're to see the way in which Jesus is speaking within the greater tradition of which he's a part, then he's speaking in a sense of, and this is why we often talk about the upside-down kingdom, right, is a way to undo the power imbalances um, to renegotiate communal life so that those who are typically excluded and on the edges and, and stripped of power are given power and dignity and so on, right? So that's a big thing that's happening in the Jesus story. Now, this means that, you know, I think the backdrop for our understanding of sin and judgment and repentance and all that kind of language needs to be really grappled with in this wider context of how Jesus sees himself within the greater tradition. Now, having said that then, does that help us negotiate some of the texts that we see both in Jesus and in Paul where uh, forgiveness, judgment, sin, and so on seem to be universalized in some kind of way, right? So when Jesus does call um, the crowds in some way, toward change and toward repentance. When he does start to say, look, you might not be going around murdering people, but if you've got hatred in your hearts, then you've still got a big problem. Uh, what do we do with those passages of Paul's, where Paul says something like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or, or something like that, or where these ideas are being used 
no longer now for just in this kind of Old Testament fashion of the imperial versus the prophetic, but is being used as a way of saying, hey, we've all got a problem here. So the first thing I guess I want to say is we read all of those in the backdrop of the biggest story that we've just been unfolding, right? So there's always a context to it. And so there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of assumed already by that bigger conversation that should sit um, as in a kind of immersive context within which we read these other texts. So that's the first thing, I guess, to stay. And then the second is that there is kind of, a, there is a progression here, again, of the prophetic trajectory. So for Jesus, um, there is no longer a sense of legitimacy to calls for violence against oppressors. So Jesus wants to move the tradition forward and say, our love should even be directed toward our enemies, not just toward our friends and our neighbors. Um, and Or we come to see the other as our neighbor, whom we need to love. And so Jesus wants to move the conversation forward again, not to sort of undo that whole tradition of which he's a part, uh, the prophetic challenge to power, but as a movement forward to say, if we're not careful, we will come to see ourselves as superior in a way where we will rise up, kill our oppressors and become the new oppressors. And, you know, history, human history is filled with revolutions in which this is the case, right? Uh, let us rise up and, and violently overthrow our oppressors and we will establish a much better world by force than the ones who came before us and, and revolutionaries who become new dictators often become just as uh, violent and abusive, if not more so, than the ones that they replaced, right? And so there's a, there's a seeking to rescue us from the cycles of violence that are so typical of human societies and communities, right? Which is being named in this kind of call to love our enemies and, um, and to embrace paths of nonviolence and so on, right? And, and to recognize that there's actually stuff going on in our hearts that have left unaddressed can become just as problematic, right? So, so that's happening again in the wider context of the bigger conversation, which I think is helpful to remember. Now, that's not meant to be used, I don't think, to then turn around and say, yes, you there who's being, you know, beaten by your uh, uh, oppressor, you are just as bad as they are, right? That's, that's not, in the wider context, that's just not a possible interpretation of that story or of that passage or of that text. Instead, it's like, we're not going to solve this by becoming as bad as our oppressor, right? We're not going to solve this by becoming them. We're going to solve this, if you like, by embracing a different way of being entirely, right? So that's, I think, one thing that's going on there. And that, that helps us to move past some of the us and them, you know, uh, binary stuff that's going on uh, that can be used to scapegoat others so that we can excuse our own participation or complicity and stuff. So I think that I think that's some of what's got or a lot of what's going on in the Jesus story. We then see this kind of flow into Paul's language in the, in his letters in the New Testament, and perhaps this is some of the harder stuff to to reckon with. And you know, there's a lot of complexity here that I won't get into today. But essentially, Paul is dealing with communities that are in conflict a lot of the time. In particular, one of his letters, which is you know the most used in terms of this kind of universalizing of sin and hey, we're all sinners and all sinners the same to God and so on, is his letter to the to the church in Rome, the book of Romans. But in Romans, what's happening is people are jostling for power, 
and they are using sense of superiority in order to do so. And what Paul does in order to undo that jostling for power to help form healthier community is to challenge them all to not just judge the other, but to look at their own sin, right, to use his language. Because in fact, all are sinners, right? Now, again, this is not meant to be then, I don't think, transplanted and universalized in all cases at all times so that then we sit down with our four-year-olds or five-year-olds in Sunday school and say, did you know that you're a sinner? Um, because Paul says we're all sinners and therefore you're guilty before God and deserving of eternal wrath. You know, that's that's such a misuse of what Paul is trying to do here. It, it, it rips it out of its context and out of its wider story and tradition and kind of universalizes it in ways that are deeply unhelpful. What Paul is trying to do is get people who are jostling and wrestling for power and status within community and get them to see that that's not the way of Jesus. And so, uh, you know, other ways he does that, in like Galatians, for example, therefore there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one, right? He's finding ways to bridge the divides of status and power in order to help bring community together. He's also, I think, in many respects, haunted by his own past. You know, Paul talks himself about himself as being the chief of all sinners. He, he, and he kind of, he uses that as a basis for a sense of, I guess, of humility and of, of combating what was very common in the first century Greco-Roman world and as well within the Christian communities that he was dealing with, which is, again, this desire for status and superiority. So he kind of flips the script by emphasizing his own depravity, uh, if you like, his own past of, sin um, as a way of undoing or sort of disarming those power games. And Paul, I think, is haunted by his own past. He was, you know, he was complicit in exclusion of Jesus' followers, of violent persecution, of um, religious zealotry in a way that made marginalized people feel, not just feel um, excluded, but were excluded and, and sometimes killed, right? And so his past is one of using religion to prop up power, to essentially kind of create kind of a religious imperialism. And now he carries that with him in light of his, his experience of the Christ to say, okay, that's my past and even I have found a home within the Christian community and have found a voice. And so... Um, if that's the case, then, and I'm the least of these, then, then can't we all just find ways to forgive and to reconcile and to build bridges as communities? Um, again, what I don't think is going on here is this universalizing of it in a way that says, and therefore we should call everybody the chief of all, you know, everybody's sins are all the same. Uh, we're all totally depraved before God and, and so on. Now, um, there is a healthy sense of going, you know what? Um, to be human does mean we have to wrestle with, with our shortcomings and our capacity for extraordinary harm, right? That's one of the challenges of the, of the Christian story is that human beings are, capable of extraordinary harm to ourselves and to one another and that we have to reckon with that. But that is not equivalent to telling suffering people, marginalized people, hurting people, vulnerable people, 
that they are depraved before God or, or not worthy of God's love, right? But that God kind of loves them despite who they are. That's not what's meant to be going on in this text. Now, the reason I say all of that then is to circle back around to how all this is used within church communities. Because when you are saturated in a world which says, sin, you know, all sinners equal, we've got to forgive, uh, what, you know, um, when people with power do things to us. But if we step out of line, we'll experience you know, judgment because sin needs to, you know, sin needs to be dealt with. Uh, when we are immersed in a theology which says we are undeserving, that um, we are worthy of eternal suffering and punishment rather than of belovedness, then I think we create environments in which abuse of power can flourish. When we take language that's part of the prophetic trajectory, to use Brueggemann's language, and we import it to support and uphold an imperial trajectory, then we do real violence to the story of Christ, I think, to the story of the Christ. Because what we do is we is we take language and ideas that are used to challenge those who use power uh, and violence to harm others and we use it to inflict pain on vulnerable people who have been themselves been abused. Uh, so I think there's a fundamental reorientation of, of what needs to happen here within the way, ways in which Christians and Christian churches and communities talk about sin, talk about violence, talk about harm, talk about power. Uh, talk about, you know, the God's anointed leaders and, you know, there, there is, it's interesting to me that in the Pentecostal tradition of which I've spent, you know, a lot of my life, there is an obsession with Old Testament monarchies. You know, there is, um, sometimes you'll even, <laughs> I've even seen sort of uh, rituals coming out of, the, in particular North America, but other places and prosperity churches and faith churches of, of pastors being sort of anointed as kings within their communities. Uh, the obsession with title, with being called pastor or bishop or apostle or whatever it might be. This obsession with apostolic authority or with being recognized and honored for who you are as the leader. That's all imperial trajectory stuff. And that's all stuff that Jesus came to undo and unpick and unwind and offer us a better way. And that better way is communities where we are able to walk alongside one another, where we're able to name harm when it occurs, but also to process forgiveness and reconciliation within those communities, not through the excusing of the abuse of power or of, or of harmful behavior, but through processes of communal um communal rituals of forgiveness and reconciliation and, and theologies that help us to um, to move forward together. So that's, I guess, um, what I want to say about that. I think this is really important. I am struck more and more as I hear all of the different conversations and stories and that this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Christian story by those with a lot of power to preach it. And we've got to find a different way. All right. So thanks as always to Rhys Michelle for taking this audio and making it sound listenable in your ears. Until next time.